Good morning. Welcome again to Cornerstone. So good to have you here. Uh, next week is Father's Day, and so we know you'll be here because we are providing the bacon. There's going to be bacon here. It's, you can't say it's God's special food because it was forbidden in the Old Testament, but thank God we don't live there anymore. So hope to see you next week. Uh, we're in our Rise and Fall series talking about the rise and fall of nations and leaders, and we're going to get to an amazing passage after working our way through one of the probably top five most difficult passages in the Bible. It's a passage that inspired the famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, after reading it to say this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. What in the world would cause such a reaction? Well, I'm the one that is asking everyone to read their Bible on your own, say, read through the whole Bible in a year, read the New Testament in a year. When you do that, you come across difficult verses that we really have to process. And so instead of skipping it, I want to take the time to talk about this difficult passage. But here are some of my convictions that I have whenever I come across something I don't really understand. The first, the Bible is without error. I believe the Bible's without error, uh, theologically, historically, in every way. I believe that God is good, just, and loving at, at all times. He never changes from being that. I believe that um, it is inappropriate to apologize for God. Just because I may not understand something or have the ability to explain it, I'm not going to stand up here and apologize for something that I believe really is in the Bible. So if I'm confused about something, I recognize the problem is with my limited understanding, not a good, just, loving, infinite, all-knowing God. So I think about that whenever I come across a passage that I have a difficult time with, a passage like this in 1 Samuel 15, verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they opposed them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. We read that saying, oh, I just wish that wasn't there. I wish it didn't say all of that. But here's the, some things that are true even as we read a passage like this. God judges the wicked now even though his intention is to bless all the nations in the end. In the very beginning, in, 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 uh, with Abraham, the start of the nation, in Genesis 12, 3, it says that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed because of Abraham, because of the descendants of Abraham, Israel. And so God is a blessing God, although he judges. It's wrong to say when you read the Old Testament, oh, that God seems angry, mean, and I have a problem with him, but the God of the New Testament is merciful and good. I understand what we're saying, but it's, if we read deeper, if we read more carefully, we find that the God of the Old Testament is merciful and good and gracious, and that same God in the New Testament is against sin and pours out his wrath against sin. We see both of those in both Testaments. Super important to realize as we look at this passage about the Amalekites, this is not ethnically motivated. It's evil motivated. And we know that because God speaks against the Canaanites in this way and various groups of them, but he also speaks against his own people in this way. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, there are curses pronounced upon the people of Israel if they start acting like the Canaanites. 
they do the wicked things the Canaanites would do, they would be judged in a very severe way. And so it's towards evil that this is aimed at. God's action against the Amalekites is only immoral in our minds, only unfair in our minds, if we believe God doesn't have the right to judge his own creation when they rebel against him. Right? But God is the one judge. James 4.12 says there's one lawgiver, one judge, and that is God. And so God is allowed to judge his own creation. We wouldn't, wouldn't even be here without him. And God's patience is on full display here. It requires some reading, but in Genesis 15, 16, we see that when God was speaking to Abraham, he said, hey, one day this is going to be your land, the land of the Canaanites, but it's not now. It's going to be like four generations from now, 400 years later, because the, the wickedness of the Canaanites was not yet complete. It wasn't right to judge them in that moment. And so they had 400 years to go from a low-level evil to repenting, but instead they took it to a high level of evil, and so they were judged. Specifically, we see that when Israel was coming out of captivity in Egypt, and while they were wandering in the wilderness, the Amalekites didn't just do a, an, an attack against the army. They went behind the army, and they were picking off the weak women and children, the disabled. Israel would move each day and set up camp, and they would give those that needed more time to walk a longer time to make their way towards camp. And they had a couple people there protected them, but not enough in this case, and the Amalekites attacked in a wicked way. These Amalekites, the Canaanites, it, it just was a different level of evil. And we have to trust God and his judgment of them. In particular, part of how they worshiped their God was by taking living children, living babies, and throwing them into the fire. This was a part of their religion. And so it was, it was evil, and God was against this. And God didn't want this type of religion to spread. So the God, the God who we trust, one person has said, God is the physician of mankind, occasionally finds it necessary to amputate a leg in order to save the rest of the body. And so God doesn't want this to spread. It did spread, right? Eventually, even Israelite kings would, would marry Canaanite women. They would bring their ways of practicing uh, the, the false religion. And even Israelite kings offered their children to Molech at one point. And so what did God do? God judged his own people. And the, through the Assyrians, through the Egyptians, through the Babylonians, they were exiled from the land because this wicked religion spread. Imagine if that spread to every country, every city of the world. God couldn't let that happen, and we need to trust him in that. God is the only one that knows the future, that if this didn't happen, what, it would, what would become of it? In fact, because Israel didn't obey God entirely here, it wreaked havoc on them. David's family, family in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30 was kidnapped by Amalekites. King Saul would be put to death by an Amalekite. And a descendant of the Amalekites is the one, Haman, in the book of Esther that tried to wipe out the entire Jewish population in all the world. And so God is the one that knows the future and has to make these tough decisions. But even with all of this, we see the mercy of God when he judges evil in some, it shows love to other people. There's a Yale theologian's name, and I'll just call him the Yale theologian because you try and pronounce his name. But he was born in Croatia and lived through a nightmare wars that had all kinds of ethnic strife in Yugoslavia. He said this, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. 
Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people were shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion, by refusing to condemn the bloodbath and instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because God is love. And so we see God's mercy all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, in Revelation 7, 9, when it talks about one day, all peoples, all tongues, all languages, all tribes will be represented in heaven praising God, that includes some Amalekites, those Amalekites that converted to worship the true God of Israel, or even those Amalekites that died in the womb or as children would go straight to heaven. And so God is showing his mercy to all peoples of all times. So perhaps a more relevant question, although we normally don't pose such difficult questions back at ourselves, is how come God didn't judge all mankind in this way? The only answer we have from reading the entirety of scriptures is because of what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. The wrath of God was poured out against Jesus and our sin as he substituted himself there so that we could have a right relationship with God. So I want to read one final quote to help put this in perspective. It's from a theologian, Sam Storms, who says, the problem isn't that God is evil. The problem is that we are. It isn't that God has mistreated us, but that we have mistreated him. This text and others like it bother us for one fundamental reason. We have virtually no grasp on the holiness of God or the sinfulness of humanity. We have little sense of the transcendent beauty moral purity, and infinite righteousness of the Creator, and we have little sense of the depth and extent and ugliness of our own depravity. And so, an appropriate reaction is you're like, so how am I supposed to live this out? Or maybe even worse, you're like, this is my first time visiting Cornerstone. <laughs> Why did you choose this passage? How do, I, how do I live out this passage? It's to remind ourselves God is more holy than we could ever imagine, and that our sin is a lot worse than we would ever say. Right, it really is worse. We should, we should have a proper understanding of our sin and the holiness of God. But it's a difficult passage and more than we can cover even right here. And so if you'd like to study this passage further, you can text the word difficult to that church number we're always talking about. And there's a recommendation there for some short articles you can read, a YouTube video, and even two books that deal specifically with these topics. And I think that uh, I've read most of them and I think that they are very helpful. So Saul doesn't even process all of this well. This ends up being a test for King Saul himself. And part of his fall away from being the leader of Israel is he thought that his heart knew better than God's heart. And that's a danger for us, thinking that our hearts are better than God's heart, that we would do things differently if we were God. Here's how Saul struggled with this in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 9. 
Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made King Saul because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. And the Lord came to Samuel and when Samuel approached the Lord, he said, Saul, he said, I, I did obey the Lord. Saul's like, I did do it. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And so Saul really is thinking that he knows best. You'll, you'll notice in verse nine it says, Saul spared the best and everything that was good. But God is making it really obvious that the Amalekites are not good, and this just needs to be wiped away, and we need to be, we need to be done with this. And Saul said, well, that just makes no sense to get rid of the, the food that we could have and these things. And so God said it was evil. Saul said, I know better. And that's a temptation that we all have to say we want to be like God and say, I would do things differently. Somehow, like, we are better or more good than God himself. Saul chose to trust and obey his heart instead of following after God's heart, a real temptation that we have. And so what do we need to do? Well, Samuel tells him, obedience is more important than any of this, than, than, than these sacrifices we're talking about, because our obedience, it shows that we truly honor and trust God that we love him, and so we love him so much that even though our feelings and the, and the culture and our flesh, it's pulling us towards these wrong ways, we're going to say, no, nope. even though I feel that and I want that, I'm going to follow after God's heart instead. Saul doesn't do this, and we need to recognize that more than religious ceremonies like the sacrifices we see here, or even church attendance or religious words that we have, more than all of that is that God wants to change our lives, but our lives can't change if we don't ever do anything differently. And so we need to obey God, follow after his heart, no matter where it leads, knowing that even though we think it will lead to a scary place where we have to just give everything up and move to Tanzania. You did that though, right? And it was a good experience. We think that's what God's gonna call us all to do. And listen, God only leads us towards his good plan for our lives. And so we can trust where he is leading. Now, we're introduced to the next king of Israel, and this king is on the rise, or I should say this young boy is on the rise because he uses his time to seek passionately after God's own heart. He does. Chapter 16, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. He's standing here before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. This is the only time in the Bible that the word height is not positively seen. Okay, it's very important to be tall. Um, I don't know why this verse, that's the verse I struggle with. I don't, that, sorry. Listen, the Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. And Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. 
Jesse had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen these, so are all your sons here? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in, and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. David, we find, is someone who is seeking after the heart of God. Now, we mentioned this verse last week, but I skipped over it because it has more to do with David than Saul. But in chapter 13, verse 14, it says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. David here is first described as someone who is after the heart of God, right? He's, he's one that is tending the sheep, but he's not just using that time all bored and angry, throwing rocks around, you know, and lighting things on fire like a little pyro. He, he's using that time to seek the Lord. He's writing psalms. He's praying. He's talking to God, and his heart is after God's heart. So seeking after God's heart, we see in this passage, it's clouded by cultural standards, what did Samuel say when he first saw the first son, Eliab, of, of Jesse? He said, surely this is the Lord's anointed. It's got to be him. Look at this guy. This guy's great. It's got to be this one. Because according to the standards in the culture, this guy would make a good king. He was tall. He was strong. This has got to be the one. He's the firstborn. And the cultural standards cause confusion even for the prophet Samuel here. And it's so important for us to realize that we are being discipled every day, whether or not we are in the, uh, the church discipleship program that we always talk about, because we are being discipled by our greatest inputs every single day. The world has a discipleship plan. The world wants to define what is good, what is evil, to redefine what is evil as good. The world wants to define what success looks like what sexuality should be, what gender should be. The world is trying to change everything, and our culture is clouding our thinking, and it can be confusing at times. And this discipleship sneaky program happens through movies and, and music and TV shows where you, you fall in love with a character, and all of a sudden their lifestyle is out of sync from the Word of God, and it just moves our hearts, emotions a little bit more towards what the world thinks instead of after God's heart, the truth that God is speaking about. And so the world uses education, art, even advertisements, books, and peer pressure to get us to say conform to the world's view instead of to what the Lord has for us. And so we've got to be careful because culture is clouding our standards. And so seeking after God's heart means growing our inner spiritual self, we need to have our greatest inputs be the things of the Lord, not the things of the world. In verse 7, it says, people look at the outward, the Lord looks at the heart. The inside, the interior life is so much more important to the Lord than the exterior. In fact, even when your exterior isn't doing well, you can be doing well with the Lord. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4, though outwardly we are wasting away, Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. How? How can we be renewed on the inside? It's not going to be a surprise. It's through reading the Bible, praying, worshiping the Lord, serving Him, 
right? A life that is after God's heart, whatever that means, for that moment. And then when the things of the Lord become our greatest inputs, we are discipled by the Lord instead of culture. Now, seeking after God's heart, it's a pursuit for all ages. But we see in this passage, especially the young. David here is described in verse 11 as still the youngest tending the sheep. They're just like forgetting. It can't be David. He's so young. He's a high schooler. Forget about him. What's he, gonna, what's he going to do? He's out there doing, you know, this job far away from us instead of coming to this important meeting. And it's just so important for us to realize that, you know, God desires a relationship with all of us. And so we should tell everybody about the Lord. But did you know that the statistics say that most people do come to the Lord when they are younger. So we should be investing in the next generation. Here's what the stats say. Two-thirds of Christians come to faith before the age of 18. Conversion above the age of 21 is is only one-fourth of believers. So still plenty of people that we should be talking to the Lord about, but 43% before the age of 12. So how did this happen? Half of them were led to Christ by their parents, and almost 30% of them through a children's ministry or youth group. And this is why we value so much the next generation here at the church. It's an amazing time and opportunity. And it's not because they're more easily manipulated. It's because the world still has this magical feel to it, right? They still believe in the supernatural before the world just squashes all their fun and their imagination and says, get in line and just be negative and skeptical. And they still have this, this energy about them. I'm not sure if you've noticed, especially second service, you probably have because parking's probably getting annoying, right? But, but the Lord is bringing people to Cornerstone. This church is, is growing. The last six weeks, the last six weeks, we've had 400 more people than normal attending the church consistently. And so the Lord is bringing people here. And with more people comes more opportunities to serve the Lord. You know, just last week alone, of the people on this campus were youth group age and younger. One quarter of us. And so we had hundreds in in the nursery, in the kids' ministry, in the middle school, in the high school groups that we're meeting. So there are lots of amazing opportunities where you can become a part of that 29% influence on someone's life that says, I chose the Lord because I saw that modeled so well at my church. And so we have immediate opportunities for even scary things like our youth ministry, but really helpful opportunities. Right now, our youth pastors are, are setting up chairs and taking them down. And you're like, ah, kids are terrifying to me. I don't like them at all. But I'm going to set up the chairs and tear them down on Sundays or Tuesdays so that our youth pastors and their leaders that are excited about the kids can do what they want to do. We have opportunity. We have more kids signing up for camp thanks to your generosity and the, and the scholarships we're providing than ever. So going to camp as a camp counselor is probably actually the most scary thing you could ever do. But we, we have opportunities where you can come on the most influential times of a kid's life at a, at a summer camp. Our kids' ministry is hoping to launch a special needs ministry, and so opportunities are there to say, I want to be a part of that so we can better bless our our parents and kids that are coming here. Literally bursting at the seams, and so the Lord has given us great opportunities to serve our youth. And so I know that's a bit of a stretch on that verse, but it's where the Lord led my heart this week to, to kind of focus on. David, the youngest, tending the sheep. And seeking after God's heart, this is what's needed more than anything else, it leads to us getting a brand new heart. It leads to us getting something new. We actually can't just be better. 
You can't just say, I'll just buy this book on habits or productivity or a self-help book, and then I'll just be better and go to, no, it's not about being better. We can't be better. We have a wicked heart and we need a new heart. We need to be born again, made alive in the spirit. And David experiences this in verse 13. It says, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. David would have ended up just like Saul, except for the spirit of God came upon him. He used his time to seek after God. The Bible says when we draw near to God, he draws near to us and the spirit of God came upon David. Well before the New Testament was written, there were prophecies that we could have a new heart, this new covenant. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from, remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This beautiful prophecy came about when Israel was experiencing judgment from the Lord while they were in exile in Babylon. God said, hey, it's not always going to be like this. There's going to be a remnant. And you're going to have this amazing advantage in the future where I'm going to give you a brand new heart so that you can relate to God himself. And so we need to recognize and be humble that we aren't enough without God. And many of you have made that decision to give your life to Jesus and to say, help me, Lord, save me, Lord. And he has made you born again and he has given you this new heart. And you've got these new desires where you desire to resist sin and follow after the Lord and seek after his heart. None of us do that perfectly, obviously. And we have seasons where we're just failing and saying, this is not the way to use my new heart. I need to seek after God's heart again. But now we have a direct relationship with God that was impossible before. And if you've been coming to Cornerstone the past few weeks or if the Lord even draw you, drew you here today and you're sensing and you're realizing, I am a sinner, right? My heart is wicked. My heart is wrong. And I want to humble myself and say, Lord, I commit my life to you and I need your forgiveness and your salvation. Then we want to give you an opportunity to do that today. Many people over the age of 21, last service, gave their life to the Lord, and so the Holy Spirit is still able to grab a hold of, of adult hearts, not just children. And so if you would bow your heads and close your eyes and just have a prayerful spirit, praying for those that are wrestling with this decision. If today you would like to commit your life to Jesus Christ, and you'd like me to lead you in a simple prayer to express that, then go ahead and just raise your hand so that we can pray together. If you'd like to ask for forgiveness of sins, all right, I see your hand. Awesome. Anyone else? Great. Yep. Great. In the balcony. Great. If that represents your desire, then you can just pray this simple prayer. After, as long as you have a sincere heart, this is a simple prayer, just expressing it to God. You could say this in the quietness of your own heart or out loud because we're just going to celebrate with you anyway. You say, Father in heaven, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sins. I repent. Come into my life and give me that new heart. I believe that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for my sins, and that he rose again three days later, and that I can experience salvation in Christ. So make me a new creation and give me the strength to seek after your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you that prayed that prayer, we want to celebrate with you and say welcome to the family of God. It's a big deal. 
right? It's a big, it's not just like an emotional thing and then you forget about it. And so we're asking you to text the word journey so we can send you some, some videos on how to pray, how to read the Bible so we can meet up with you and answer your questions. And so please text the word journey if you made that decision today or recently so that we can support you. Why don't you stand with me? God bless you guys and we'll see you here next week.